Welcome to Life Study of the Bible, brought to you by Living Stream Ministry. These programs are based on the ministry of Witness Lee and his 21-year crowning work, The Life Study of the Bible, which focuses on the enjoyment of Christ as the divine life as revealed in the Bible. We hope that through these studies you'll be brought into a deeper enjoyment of the Scriptures and of our dear and precious Lord Jesus. You can contact us by sending email to radio at lsm.org or reach us toll-free, 888-LIFE-STUDY. Now, let's join today's program. Sometimes our environment seems terrible and hard, but we need to remember this verse, all things work together for good. The good in this verse is that we would be transformed and conformed to the image of Christ. Romans chapter 5 unveils our salvation in two marvelous aspects. We have been reconciled to God eternally by the death of Christ on the cross, but much more we shall be saved in his life. It's this much more salvation that we're going to look at again today on the Life Study of the Bible with Witness Lee. This program is furnished by Living Stream Ministry and features the spoken ministry of Witness Lee, who was a co-worker of Watchman Nee in China in the 1930s and 40s. He continued this ministry in the United States in 1962. We're going to hear excerpts today from the 1975 Life Study of Romans. Joining us again today to discuss this Life Study is Ed Marks. Ed, welcome back to the Life Study of Romans. Well, Chris, it's good to be back again, especially to see how we can be saved daily, day by day, in the wonderful life of Christ. Ed, why does Witness Lee define Romans 5.10 as a turning point in the book? Yes, Chris, you, you mentioned something about this verse, and I would just like to read it for our listeners. It says, this verse says, For if we, being enemies, were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more we will be saved in his life, having been reconciled. Now, the reason why this verse is a turning point in the book of Romans is that up until this point, what Paul is talking about mainly is our judicial redemption. Now, when we use the word judicial, what we mean by judicial is redemption has a legal aspect. God's righteous demands needed to be satisfied. Romans uh, tells us that the wages of sin is death. God is a holy God. He's a righteous God. The penalty of sin needed to be paid. Well, Christ died on the cross for our sins. He paid the penalty of sin, so we've been reconciled to God through the death of God's Son, and judicially, legally, we have been redeemed by God. But now we come to a turning point in the book of Romans with this verse, and this verse tells us there's much more than just judicial redemption. God's purpose in his salvation is to save us in Christ's life so that Christ's life would be dispensed into our spirit, spread out from our spirit into our soul, and eventually invade our mortal body until our whole being is swallowed up by life and we are men of life. This is the full salvation of God in the book of Romans. Ed, thank you for the introduction. Let's join Witness Lee with our life study from Romans chapter 5. 
now we come to self-likeness. Why the Lord Jesus turned to Peter and called him Satan? Peter was very kind to the Lord Jesus. He was not bad. He was loving the Lord. Yet, in the eyes of the Lord, by that moment, Peter was sick. And there, you can see in Matthew 16, Satan is just the reality of the self. First of all, the Lord said, Satan! Then the Lord said, you have to deny yourself. The self is the incarnation of Satan. And Satan is the reality of the very self. Jesus Christ is the expression, the embodiment, and the incarnation of God. Where is God? God is in Christ. Tell me, where is Satan? Satan is in ourself. We all were born self. Regardless whether you are good, or you are bad, or you are hating people, or you are loving people, that makes no difference. As long as you look so natural. I heard... Some of the saints appraised others, saying, my, that person is wonderful. Deep within me, I said, yes, naturally wonderful. Oh, that man is full of love. Yes, full of love in the natural way. In the eyes of God, whether you are naturally loving or you are naturally hating, the essence is the self. The appearances are different. One is the appearance of love, so nice. And the other is the appearance of hatred, so ugly. The appearances are different. The inward essence is exactly the same. Neither you look at Christ when you hate others or when you love others. That is natural. Only Christ looks like Christ. You have an expression of the self. That is the self-likeness. From this, we have to be saved. We have to be rescued in Christ as our life. Of course, this very self has been dealt with by Christ on the cross. But that was just a kind of sentence of judgment. Any kind of judgment always needs an execution. So we have to execute what Christ has accomplished on the cross. The judgment was there objectively on the cross, yet the execution should be here subjectively by the life of Christ. Then, to be saved from the self is to be conformed.
to the image of the Son of God. Yet in the first portion today, we see the self as one of the items in Romans that the life of Christ saves us from. We even see self and Satan being equated in the Lord's well-known rebuke of Peter in the Gospel of Matthew. What is the relationship, Ed, between the self and Satan? Yes, Chris, uh, to see this relationship, we, we have to go back to the fall of man. God created man, of course, in a wonderful way. Uh, man has a spirit, soul, and a body. Of course, God's intention with this man was that man would be filled with him as life. But we know that man fell. Well, when man fell, man's body, which was pure and good, got transmuted into the flesh. His soul became the self, and his spirit was deadened. Now, to see the relationship between the self and Satan, we have to come to Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, verses 21 through 24, we see that Peter is is telling the Lord, uh, God, be merciful to you, Lord. This shall by no means happen to you. In other words, Peter was telling the Lord, Lord, we don't want you to go to the cross. This is terrible, you know. God, be merciful to you. But then the Lord spoke to Peter, and he said, Get behind me, Satan. He, he called Peter Satan. What does this mean? And then after he said that, he said, If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself. When you look at these verses, what you see is that Man's corrupted soul, which is the self, is the embodiment of Satan. Whenever the soul is independent from God, the soul becomes the self. This is what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. They did something independent from God, not trusting in God. Whenever the soul is independent from God, the soul becomes the self. So what is the self? The self is the soul declaring independence from God. So what do we need to do? We need to be saved in his life. When we are enjoying Christ as life, we are truly dependent upon God, and this saves us in his life from ourself. Yeah, that's a striking realization that, of course, as regenerated, saved believers, we know we have the capacity to express God. But here was Peter offering something outwardly, seemingly quite good. Lord, spare yourself. No, this shouldn't come to you. But this was the expression of God's enemy, Satan. The self has that capacity, doesn't it? Yes, the self has a terrible capacity. And this is why we need to turn our hearts to the Lord and set our mind on the Lord in our spirit. In this way, we deny the self and we live by Christ as our life. And Christ as our life is expressed through us. Let's rejoin Witness Lee. To be saved from the self is to be positively conformed into the image of the Son of God. We have pointed out in Romans 8, you have these three terms, the children of God. Right? The sons of God and then the heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Verse 16 says, The Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are the children of God. 
In verse 14 it says, As many as are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. In verse 17 it says, We are the heirs, the children, the sons, and the heirs. If you look into all the verses, the children are in the first initial stage. In the childish state, he is a child, not <laughs> in reality a son yet. When he will grow up, that he could understand you, he will be directed by you. Then he starts to be the real son. As many are led by the Spirit, they are the sons of God. But before this time of leading, they were just children of God, witnessed by the indwelling Spirit. They could only cry, Abba, Father. When they grow up to three, four, five years of age, they start to understand you. Whatever you say, they would follow. That is the leading. That is to be led by your instruction because they have grown up to certain states. But still, you could not let your boy, even 17 half years of age, to be an heir. Right. To be an heir need to be mature. Here is an heir of the throne of the kingdom. Say the king of England. But still he's just nineteen years of age. Yet still he is not matured and qualified to be the real heir of the throne. We are talking about the sons. To be conformed to the image of the son of God that the firstborn son may have many brothers. Christ, as the Son, was firstly the unique, only begotten of God. But after Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, God started to have many sons. And the one unique, only begotten Son has become the firstborn among many brothers. In 829, you have the mass production. In chapter 1, verse 4, you have one son designate, a prototype. And in chapter 8, verse 29, you have many sons conform. The conformation of many sons was the work of mass production. Well, Ed, in an earlier program, we clearly saw this progression in Romans 8 from a child of God to a son of God and eventually to an heir of God. But also, we heard the term mass production related to the many brothers in verse 28. Ed, how does this term fit in the context of Romans chapter 8? 
Well, Chris, what we see is in the entire book of Romans is that God's eternal purpose is to have many sons. And these many sons form a body to express Christ. This is God's eternal purpose. So what has to happen is there has to be a mass production of God's firstborn son. Romans 8.29 speaks of Christ as the firstborn among many brothers. When Christ rose from the dead, he became the firstborn son of God, and we became the many sons of God, the many brothers of Christ. Christ is the prototype, and the many sons become the mass reproduction of that prototype. God's intention is to conform us to the image of Christ as the firstborn son of God. This is the mass production of Christ as the firstborn son of God. If you look in the previous verse, in verse 28, it says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Well, the all things there refers to all matters, all persons, all environments, and all situations. Sometimes our environment seems terrible and hard, but we need to remember this verse, all things work together for good. We need to see the good in this verse is that we would be transformed and conformed to the image of Christ as the firstborn Son of God. So, we know that all things work together for good. To who? To those who love God. The key to being conformed to the image of Christ as the firstborn Son of God is for us to love God. We need to pray, Lord, constrain me with your love. Keep me loving you. Lord Jesus, I still love you. We need to tell the Lord we love him continually throughout the day. In this way, he's added to us, and we're conformed to the image of Christ as the prototype for the many sons of God. Thank you, Ed. Let's go back to Witness Lee for the conclusion of our life study. To be saved from the self is to be made sons of God. In this book of Romans, God's goal is not to justify people, but to make sons out of sinners with God's life to form a body to express Christ. Before the foundation of the world, God marked us out in time. You were born, Paul was born, we all were born. He predestinated. Whom he predestinated, he called. When he called us, he was making so clear to us every problem has been solved. But this was not the end. From the time of justification, uh -huh, he has been doing a work to sanctify us, yes. to transform us. And the ultimate transformation will be glorification. Amen. Transformation is for glorification. In a sense, yes, the Bible does say, Colossians 3, 4, it says what? When Christ, who is our life, appears, we all shall be with him in glory. 
It seems it is something that will happen in the twinkling of an eye. But don't forget, Second Corinthians 3.18 yeah. transformed from one degree of glory to another degree of glory. If you go to 1 Corinthians 15, you can see Paul explained to you the degree of glory. It is just like a grain of seed. That is the initial stage of glory. Just a little grain, tender, lovely sprout. It will grow from a stage of glory to another stage of glory. Stage after stage, degree after degree, until its growth reaches the last stage of brush. It is not an overnight thing, you know, happening at the twinkling of an eye. It is a matter of growth in a gradual way from one degree to another degree. Now, we all have to realize Christ as the seed of the divine life has been sown into us. And this organic seed has to <laughs> develop itself in our being. We were born natural. We were born worldly. God doesn't care whether you are good, you are bad, you are patient, you are impatient, you are loving, you are hating. God doesn't care for that. God cares for making sins out of sinners. This seed, this life seed of the sonship within us is doing a work to metabolize our natural being. I use the tea water again as an illustration. Here's a glass of water. This is natural water in the natural color, in the natural appearance, in the natural essence. God doesn't care for the natural water. God cares for making tea water. Now God puts some tea into the water, and the tea is the essence. And the essence of tea will work within the water to terrify the water. Then you have a deification. And eventually, the water will look like tea, the water will taste like tea, and even in the water, there is the essence of the tea. So, I'm so glad that most of people, since tea put into the water, no more call the water water. We all call them tea. Because the water has been teabied. We are all natural. Uh, and God has put the heavenly tea into us. And this heavenly tea, I tell you, is organic. Christ is metabolizing day by day. He's doing it now. He calls us everything. Hallelujah. It will be his birth. Well, Ed Witnessley points out that Colossians 3, 4 and several other verses in the New Testament point to a sudden, even instantaneous change or transfiguration that happens to our body at the time of the Lord's reappearing. 
But then we have some contrasting verses, like 2 Corinthians 3.18, that indicate that our glorification is very incremental, even gradual. How do we reconcile these two thoughts? Well, Chris, most Christians uh, just emphasize two parts of our salvation. One is regeneration. The other is glorification. When we're born again, when we're regenerated, this takes place in a moment, just like conception takes place in a moment of time. And in the same way, when we're raptured, when our bodies are glorified, 1 Corinthians 15.52 says this takes place in the twinkling of an eye. But a big missing among us as believers is the matter of transformation. Yes, there is regeneration. Yes, there is glorification. But in between regeneration and glorification, there is a long, long process of transformation. All of us need to be transformed. And 2 Corinthians 3 tells us how we can be transformed and how we're being transformed. Verse 18 says that we all with unveiled face, beholding and reflecting the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from glory to glory, even as from the Lord's Spirit. So we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another degree of glory until eventually we'll be glorified. Now, practically, how can we be transformed? We have to look at 2 Corinthians 3.16. This verse says, Whenever the heart turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, when we, it seems so simple. But when we turn our hearts to the Lord, the veil is taken away from our hearts and we are beholding the Lord with an unveiled face. We are looking at him face to face and he's transfusing his glorious life into us to bring us to another stage of glory. In light of this, we all need to be encouraged to turn our hearts to the Lord. No matter where you are right now, you're in the kitchen, you're on the freeway, you're in your bedroom, I don't care where you are right now, I would encourage you to say, Lord Jesus, I turn my heart to you. I like to gaze on you with an unveiled face all day today. Lord Jesus, keep my heart turned to you day by day and throughout the day. When our heart is turned to him, that is when he is transforming us from glory to glory until eventually after this long process, we'll be glorified. Ed, you're right, I think, the two instantaneous aspects of our salvation, the regeneration of our spirit at the moment we receive him, and the glorification of our body when we are raptured to be with him, these are the ones that we choose and select and spend much of our time considering and what we like to talk about. But really, this middle portion, the transformation of our fallen, self-consumed soul, is really what the Christian battle is all about, isn't it? Yes, this is where the battle is. We need transformation. Ed, thank you for being here again with us. I very much enjoyed our fellowship today and look forward to your being back with us very soon. I'm Chris Wilde. Thank you for listening today. You've been listening to Life Study of the Bible with Witness Lee. Brought to you by Living Stream Ministry, publisher and distributor of the works of Watchman Nee and Witness Lee. If you'd like to contact us, just email radio at lsm.org 
or call us toll free at one triple eight life study. That's one eight 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 five four three three seven eight eight. Thanks for listening.